Actually, just to introduce things, um, and then I'll pray. Obviously, hopefully, it is with some trepidation that I begin this evening. Um, this is a hot topic culturally. Um, it's, it's a way in which at times the church has got stuff wrong, and it's a way in which as well um, uh, the, the church is very different from our current culture. Um, I'm aware that I am a man, and therefore for some that may be an issue. Again, we live in a culture where those with the loudest voice are those who have been oppressed and victimised by a particular thing. And therefore, for me to come as a man, no less a white man, no less a middle-class white man, uh, will be an issue for some. I'm aware of that as well. Um, and I'm aware too that we are a relatively wise church, actually, in lots of ways. And therefore, there's the possibility of creating a fair bit of heat. Um, we may uh, disagree with each other on some stuff. And also, our culture isn't great at listening to each other. We talked about that a bit with our recent iGen series. Um, and so, as we discuss, um, perhaps afterwards, then let's be generous with each other and hearing what each other are actually saying, um, rather than caricatures or often what the culture thinks the church says, which is often the case. Um, so let me pray for us, lead us in prayer, and then I'll um, take us through. You should hopefully have a handout on your table, if not... Uh, I can probably give you mine, but if there will be more chance to say that my um, other spares too. Good. Okay, we're all good. Um, and as you'll see, I start fairly broad, quite deliberately, to try and put some bits and bobs in place before we get into the specifics. Um, hopefully, as we do that, you will see why I bothered. Um, but let me leave it in prayer as we start. Father in heaven, we pray that you would be with us this evening. Thank you that you promise where your people gather so you are among them. And so we pray that you would give us wisdom. We pray that you might grow your fruit within us, that we might be increasingly Christ-like. We pray as we look at your words together, and that you would teach us and you would help us. And we pray perhaps where we disagree with each other, as we probably will, then you would give us um, a graciousness with each other um, to listen and discuss well. Uh, in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Um, the thing I've realised in preparing this week is um, there is far more nuance out there than perhaps we give credit for when it comes to this whole area. So even, even this afternoon going on Wikipedia, I just thought I'd be, I just thought let's have a look at what the definition there for complementarianism, for complementarianism is. And even there, actually, I thought I disagree with what they're saying. Um, and they've gone to a very, very broad definition of the um, question. So I, I, the bit at the end that I crossed out, you'll hopefully see later, um, why I've done that and that they've gone for a very conservative definition there and just there's so much more nuance than we give credit for anyway, let's dive in um, to the initial thing and that is where do we go for our authority on these things often as Christians we talk past each other on a whole range of things a whole, um, yeah, a whole range of matters um, and we often disagree, we don't necessarily realise it, but because ultimately we, we have different foundations in place 
for believing what we believe. And sometimes there are four fundamental foundations within the wider church that people speak of. Um, Obviously there will be interplay between them and they will inform each other, but the question is, where do you go ultimately for a foundational authority for why you believe what you believe about anything? At the end of the day, what trumps everything else? Um, And so, as you see the square on your um, front page there of your handouts, there's a first group that might want to say we would go to the Bible as our foundational authority. So to interpret or explain or or understand all life and behaviour, for all that we believe, fundamentally and foundationally, we ought to go to the Bible. Why? Because Jesus is at the heart of the Scriptures. Um, because they all testify about him, because the Old Testament looks forward to him, because the New Testament shows him, and then how he continues his work through the church, through the early church. Um, He is at the heart of it, and he is still ruling his church through his word, and therefore, um, some groups of Christians would say the Bible ought to be our ultimate authority. And you would probably call those Christians evangelicals. There's a second group who might want to have, or, or perhaps better supplements, this foundational authority, with reason. Um, I will give you a worked example in a moment, so you'll, for those of you who prefer examples and working through, then you'll see what I'm getting at. Um, so for their understanding or, or practice, it's purely based upon what can be discerned by human reason, whatever can be demonstrated to be sensible or reasonable or intelligent, and where there is no reason, then something will be discarded. Okay, so Bible, reason. The next one is institution, that is to see what the... The teachings of your institution say about something, that is what you believe about this issue. Um, your institution is the most important thing in terms of authority and what happens in terms of faith and life. Um, so if your church documents or your historical practices or priests or bishops or, or whatever say something, then you will adopt it and practice and believe that because that is the way it is. The fourth one then is experience, that is those who are um, led in life primarily foundationally by their experiences of God. So they seek to be obedient to whatever way they feel the Spirit is moving them, or prompting them, or telling them. Um, Obviously, different church streams and different denominations will have different leanings on these four different things. Um, I was chatting with some guys last night and we wondered whether there might be an F on the end of it as well. So it's not just Brie, B-R-I-E, but Brief. Um, which is something, there's something pleasing about that, isn't there? Um, F in our current culture being feelings. That is, and we saw it particularly again in our iGen series, um, reason and feelings will be tied together, but whereas reason might have more of an intellectual element, then F for feelings is more of what, what I feel about something. Um, particularly with an ethical idea, how does this idea make me feel, and therefore what do I believe about it? Is this a an ethically, morally repugnant idea, um, because that's what our current culture says, and therefore that is what I feel, and therefore that is what I believe. So we're driven at times by hearts, if you like, rather than heads. I'm going to give you a work example. And that is, if you were to um, think of all the Christians that you know, so folk at church, Christians from down the years, your family, um, a breadth of believers, no doubt we all have a breadth of folk that we know, and you were to say to all your friends, or we were to questionnaire all our friends, to say, do supernatural miracles happen today, then what would the answer be? Now, 
The Bible guys would presumably say, well, what does the Bible teach on this? Um, does God do miracles? Can we see them in the scriptures? Does he have the power to do miracles? Has he changed in any way? Is there any reason why he might have stopped doing miracles? Has salvation history moved on? That God's not in the business of miracles anymore? And that will inform the answer for the B folk. That way, isn't it? Because I'm backwards. There we go. Then the R guys, the reason guys, will look at the world and say, well, from my experience, of the, they probably say anyway, my experience of the world, if they're consistent, um, I can't understand how a miracle will happen because the way I view the world, it's just not possible. And therefore, if miracles are a contradiction of the laws of nature, then no. Then I would say a miracle couldn't happen, would say the R guy, probably. Of course, we're all inconsistent. But fundamentally and foundationally, that ought to be where it goes. The institution guys, the I, would say, well, what does my church think about this? Are there documents or position papers? What do those over me say? What do my bishops and archbishops and popes, what do they say? Is there an official policy on these things? If so, I will toe the line. B-R-I. Then the experienced guys might say, well, I've, I've never seen or experienced one, and therefore they can't exist. Or they say, I have experienced one. You know, as a teenager, I saw this thing happen. I have to say that miracles exist because of my experience. My experience or lack of experience will dictate where I go for my authority foundationally. Is that making rough sense? Um, you'll see in a bit why we're going here for this, but if that's making rough sense, that's good. And then the F person, if you want to draw them out from the R guys, miracles aren't sort of ethical ideas, they don't work quite the same way, but our feelings might dictate whether we are prepared to accept them or not. Um, you know, what do I feel about miracles and therefore what do I think what do I believe about them now as I say there will be an interplay between those things obviously um, our, our reason for example or the institution that we're a part of might affect how we read the Bible of course our experience even might affect um, how we reason or indeed the institution that we end up at whatever it might be there will be an interplay between them but the thing I want us to get through to really is the fundamental and foundational authority for why we believe what we believe, why we do what we do. And you've got a B, R, I, E, possibly an F. Um, and we would be, at this church, we would be B guys, foundationally, and girls. We are an evangelical church. And therefore, that's where we would sit. That is where fundamentally and foundationally we would find our authority. That doesn't mean reason has no part to play. Of course it doesn't. It doesn't mean that we don't work hard at the text and understand what it meant then, before thinking about what it means now. We will do our hard work because we think the Bible is important and therefore we want to read it as it was meant to be read. It doesn't mean that we don't think institution has no place or experience even has no place. But it does mean that fundamentally and finally the Bible would be our source of authority for all aspects of Christian living. Um, and therefore that means at times and particularly perhaps at the moment on a topic like this we as, as a church or as evangelical churches are like sore thumbs when it comes to our world we are very different from what the world thinks at the moment in some aspects um, even just thinking Dave's sermon last Sunday I was just chewing on this as I was preparing thinking Jesus will come back one day and if if those outside the church were to listen into that sermon, they would think we're crazy. Genuinely. 
Um, Jesus one day will come back and he will show grace and he will show judgment. We sit at odds with the world and that is okay because we are the people, we are evangelical fundamentally and finally and we find our identity, uh, our fundamental thinking there. Um, the second thing I want to say as well, and I'm sort of waggling over the teeth for a while and hopefully again you'll see why we get there, so trust me for a bit and then you'll hopefully you'll, you'll work out the relevance or the importance of just doing broad foundations as we begin. Um, this is a secondary issue in, the issue in the body of Christ, I take it. Um, part of our problem as believers, and particularly in our feelings culture, then we can get things muddled as to how important some, something is. And we might think, because you disagree with me, then therefore you hate me. No, again, go listen to the iGen series, we don't think that at all. But we can lovingly disagree with people and not hate them. Um, so I want to say there are probably four different types of things that we can disagree on, or different issues and areas. Um, I think there are truths to die for, that is, they are non-negotiables. They are issues of salvation, they are issues of primary importance. They are issues where we would say, perhaps with Paul in Galatians, guys, you've lost the gospel here, and this really matters. Actually, you've moved from being inside of Christ to being outside of Christ. Truths to die for. These are the, the truths with which we will die on the hill for. Second ones, they're truths to d- divide for. They're all D's, I'm afraid. Sorry. Um, these might be deal breakers for church involvement for you. Conscience issues. There might be particular policies. You can see that the folk within this church are believers. But this issue that you care about so much is high up on your agenda and therefore you're going to love them and you're going to leave them. Then there are truths to debate for. And I think this is where we are tonight. And then there are truths to decide for, which would be less important stuff, like lifestyle issues or or alcohol, or whatever it might be, you know, whether you um, think Christians should only eat meat because pre-Noah was just... Sorry, only eat vegetables because pre-Noah was just vegetables, whatever it might be. Some things that you can um, debate on, or decide on, but actually come quite low down. Um, again, the problem is, we sort of conflate those things and everything gets very shanty, very quickly and very shrill. Um, there we go. So that's the sort of basics. And then I'm going to go through, in simple terms, the spectrum when it comes to the way in which Christians understand, from, largely from the scriptures, how men and women interplay and interact. Again, I'm being... I'm I'm being simple, but not simplistic, hopefully. I'm not wanting to draw straw men. So if you think I am, come and chat to me afterwards. Um, I'm not meaning to do that. I'm just trying to be quick and give people a breadth of understanding. Again, one of the joys and the difficulties with MRC is that we are up on a broad church, and therefore for some people, this will be something you've thought a lot about. And for others, it will be brand new. Um, and you're expecting it to be Kitty, but she's next week, so I'm sorry about that. Um, four simple, sim- sim- in simple terms, four views. There's a Christian feminist view. Um, 
In simplistic terms, there are voices in our culture that say men and women are largely interchangeable in everything. Okay, it's, you know, destroy the patriarchy. Um, men and women are essentially the same and are to be treated as, as such. Um, that is something that's clearly being debated as well. That the, the, the culture is struggling with it. Um, issues like athletics at the moment and whether trans women ought to be able to compete, for example, is something that our, our culture is dealing with or trying to deal with. Um, but the direction of travel is towards an interchangeability between men and women. And so, Christian families would say there ought to be true in marriage and there ought to be true in the church. Essentially, there ought to be an interchangeability. Um, there ought to be equal rights in terms for women in all spheres of life. Um, and so they would say from Genesis 1 that was equality of, of dominion. <coughs> Men and women made in God's image, both ruling over, there's an equality there. And then so that many would say at least Genesis 3, from the fall onwards, that was ruined and destroyed. Which means now there's a, there's a huge desire to liberate women from oppression and to sort of free them from a male-dominated society more generally and in the church, um, they would say. Some would go as far as to question the authority of the Bible because it was controlled or written by men. And there's a particular concern you would find at least um, some Christian feminists who would want to look for an inter- uh, integration of gender-neutral pronouns in the Bible um, and search for uh, a feminine or gender-transcendent divine. So that's a big agenda um, within, within some circles at least. Um, so to pray to God as Father, for example, would be an issue. So that's Christian feminists. Um, again, forgive me for speed and brevity. Then at the other end, if you like, we've got the patriarchal view, which would say, and we'd look at some of the passages we're going to look at in a bit, and I think would misinterpret them. Um, it would say that no women can lead or teach men at any time. Um, many would say a woman has to be under the authority of a man and many would go not just to say within church but actually outside of the church too which would mean within church no women leading worship or um, Bible studies or services or prayer groups or ministries but also outside the church in the workplace women shouldn't be, they would say, in positions of leadership Um, at least if there are men working underneath them um, subordinate to them. You couldn't be a female CEO, they would say, with men looking to you for leadership. Um, then there's the egalitarian view. And if you like, I suspect Christian feminists and patriarchal at each end of the extreme would be largely minority views and yet some would be growing, um, particularly in the way that we are so um, um, polarised at the moment. Actually the growth of one kind of leads to a reactionary growth of another in unhelpful ways. Um, so the egalitarian view, if you like, would be linked to the Christian feminist view. Um, it's that end of the scale. Um, and whereas largely speaking, a Christian feminist would take their authority from the world, so egalitarians are, are influenced by scripture and reading and understanding scripture. So egalitarians would not be against male leadership, but egalitarian would be more about giftedness and godliness for that position. They would say, and they would be right, I think that God has used amazing women through the Bible in all kinds of ways. Powerful, brave, faithful women whom the Lord has used. 
Um, so they would say, and I would agree with them, think of Jesus as being, um, after the resurrection, seen first by women, that they were the initial witnesses of the resurrection. He entrusts the most important news in the world ever to women at that point, whose testimony wouldn't stand up in the court of law. So Jesus hugely empowers women at that point. Or they might say, think of the funding of ministry through the New Testament. Think of Jesus um, receiving from generous businesswomen. Um, Luke 8, verse 1 to 3. Mary, Susanna, that kind of thing. Or indeed Paul. Um, in Acts 18, you see Lydia and the role that she seems to play within the early church. Or they say, think of teaching even. Think of and Priscilla and Aquila. Uh, Acts 18, 1 Corinthians 16, 2 Tim 4. This kind of double act, husband and wife it seems, who the Lord used mightily. Um, think of Phoebe the deaconess. Um, again, there are... Some would question whether she, she's a deacon, but I, I think I'm persuaded that I am. Romans 16... Um, uh, so, so there are individuals who are zoomed in and say, look how the Lord used these people, look how God used these people through actually Old Testament as well, I've just focused in on neither, um, but there are individuals whom the Lord uses mightily. Think Esther, for example, think Ruth. Um, in a very patriarchal society, think of the way that the biblical writers lifted up women. Um, another common argument, um, which I'm, I'm going to mention, um, but I don't, I don't think it's a very good one, but I'll mention it anyway, for the egalitarian side, would come from the idea of trajectory. Okay? That is, as you track through the Bible, you see the trajectory of the role of women in a patriarchal world um, growing. So if you think of, a, think of a chart, think of a line graph, and the, sort of the, the trajectory that goes up, and you know, the Bible stops here, then where would we have got to if the Bible hadn't stopped, essentially? That's the argument. Um, yeah, if the Bible continued, you would have to say that women would have been in every area of leadership. And there's a particular book by, by a guy called William Webb. Um, I think... Okay, I've not read it. I've read reviews of it, and I've read commenting on it, so I don't want to say I have read it. And it's called Slaves, Women and Homosexuals. David, have you read it? Okay. Um, my understanding is there are lots of good questions raised. He, he raises all kinds of helpful things, but ultimately you end up sitting over the text saying, actually God, your word isn't sufficient, and we're going to sit over it and show where we would have ended up rather than believing God for, for what he was saying at that point. Um, so they kind of extrapolate in unhelpful ways, and I think as well, um, uh, yeah, Again, from the reviews I've read, they, they miss the importance of demons the importance of Christ in being this sort of authoritative tool for understanding how we read the New Testament. Um, I'm going to miss that. Anybody want to talk about junior, junior, possible, possible apostle? That are helpful things. Anybody want to wave if you do? Come and grab me after if you don't. That's fine. Um, Romans 16, verse 7. There's there are various debates if you want to chat afterwards about that. It's just down to say that um, there is a significant press go, and I forget where it is, something Pat told me, um, where it's believed that um, Junior is actually presiding in communion. Now that's extremely controversial as you can imagine, but it is a quite an interesting historical part of the argument. Um, some may know more about it than I, but it comes in here at this Okay, well, I'll, I'll comment. Three questions. 
Um, one, there are big questions as to whether she was, he was male or female, because it all depends on where the accent was in the Greek. We don't know. Um, there's a question as to whether he or she was an apostle um, or not. Does, does it mean apostle as an authoritative apostle, like Paul, or does it mean an apostle as a sense one, like a missionary? Um, and the third question is, and you've got, if you've got an IV there, and look it up, um, it's outstanding among the apostles, or it could be, we've got the footnote, esteemed by the apostles, which means outstanding among, yes, an apostle, um, and, and, and regarded well by them, or a good apostle, if you like, or esteemed by means um, the apostles esteems this person, whether male or female. Um, so there are all kinds of questions, uh, which I think probably means... Um, we can't make any particularly <laughs> certain decisions. Uh, you can go and wrestle with some commentaries, as I have this week. Um, which means, for an egalitarian, the prohibitions that we will look at in a bit, um, they would say they were simply and only cultural for that time. So where particularly Paul will draw boundaries or say yea or nay on certain things, an egalitarian would say, Ah, as you understand why he wrote it, um, then you will see it was only for that time and that situation in that context. And I want to say there is some truth in that, but I think to limit it just to that is unhelpful. Which then brings me on to the complementarian view. Um, Like an egalitarian, a complementarian would say men and women are equal in terms of value and worth and dignity but the difference is, the complementarian would say there is a distinction of roles between men and women. Um, and as we'll see in a bit, well, I'll leave that for a moment actually. A distinction of roles, so total equality in terms of worth and dignity, but God gives different positions and responsibilities for men and women. I'm going to do a quick thing on Galatians 3 because this is sometimes used as a well, clearly you can't be a complementarian because... Um, and I've got the, uh, a few verses there in your handouts. Um, so in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. For all of you were baptised into Christ, having clothed yourselves with Christ, therefore... So there is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. I'm not going to say a huge amount about that, except to say that remember the context of Galatians. Remember what is going on. Remember, Neil Martin did a couple of sessions for us, if you want to go back onto the website and look back, if you're not that familiar with Galatians. Um, But the context was Jewish Christians wanting to retain the privilege of their ethnic identity. And yet the Gospel comes in as the great division destroyer. We have a fundamental unity now such that there you go at the bottom. The cross destroys divisions, not distinctions. Okay? The cross destroys divisions, not distinctions. Paul cannot be saying that gender no longer exists. Now he's saying that those things that would separate us have now been removed by the cross. Destroys our divisions, not our distinctions. We have a fundamental unity, but we're still different. Now, there are conversations there about slave and free, that kind of stuff, but that's from the time. Um, which means, for the complementarian, the roles and distinctions 
that the Lord seems to put in place are not a product of the fall, but they are pre-Genesis 3. So whereas Christian feminism would say these distinctions and roles come from are a result of the fall, so here, complementarians say, no, 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 actually those things were in place before the fall happened in Genesis 3. And there would be four basic arguments there. Um, they would talk about the order of creation, this is particularly in Genesis 2, the order of creation that Adam was created before Eve. Um, they would talk about the title of the woman as being a helper suitable. Now, pause. That has been hugely misused. I think that is one of the places where, um, if you look back at church history, then that helper word has been misunderstood and abused in unhelpful ways. The helper word does not just mean someone to carry the bags. You know, you, you've got the you've got the, the golf person and you've got the caddy who brings the, the sticks along, the sort of footnote, the subordinate assistant. That is not what is being got at here. That is not what is going on when he uses the word helper. Actually, the word used points to the the, t- the fact that woman was totally vital for. Um, for humanity to do its job. Um, I'm not a Hebraist. Dave is. Ezer? Ezer? Is that the word? Ezer. Yeah, it's just like Ezra. It's just the Israel. It's apparently used 21 times in the Old Testament, twice here in Genesis 2, in verse 18 and verse 20. It's used three times in people helping somebody else in life threatening situations. And then it's used 16 times of the Lord in God helping his people. And those ways are always vital, valuable and powerful actions. So this isn't helper golf caddy. This is helper, powerful, mighty, vital, necessary, good. The big danger is we read Genesis 2, actually the big danger is as we read the Bible, and we, we interpret words in a way that they are used now often, thinking, what does this mean now? Rather, what did it mean then? What does this word mean? Before we think, what does it mean now? And the third one is the man's naming of woman, indicating a, an authority of sorts, and then the order of temptation and accountability as well. Um, so, when Adam and Eve do fall, it goes, snake, woman, Adam. In the same way that when the Lord then comes to speak to them, then it goes um, the opposite way around. It's Christ's creation turned on its head. This is the way it's not meant to be, says Genesis. Having said that, of course, the fall does affect things. And we would be foolish to think it did not. Headship is distorted now. Your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. Chapter 3, I think is the, begi- the beginning of the battle of the sexes. I'm going to keep spewing words. Um, the other thing that's worth saying as well, and this is important, and I, again, as I've read these last couple of weeks and wrestled with this, I've been struck by the reality that there is there is more breadth on a complementarian grouping than perhaps I've realised before, but actually that's answered 
why often I struggle with what some complementarians would say. Um, so there's a hard end, if you like, almost touching the patriarchal view, maybe even overlapping with the patriarchal view. Um, for example, they would say that all women should be um, women should not, should be under the obvious authority of a man. All women should not serve as deacons. I mean, there have been some interesting uh, articles which you can come and chat to me about afterwards if you like, um, that would say women shouldn't, for example, be police officers. Um, I would have a problem with that because I think they are applying truths for, I'm going to get hate mail for this, but truths for church, essentially, and truths for family and applying it outside. We're, we're, going, to, we're going to keep going, we don't have to. I'm not going to mention who it is for now, that's cool. Um, so there's a really hard stance to a much more moderate stance at the other side, um, to the belief that women are limited from some church offices, um, such as a senior pastor or an elder. Um, however, some, again, moderate complementarians, and even some more conservative um, egalitarians, would hold that women can and should teach and lead outside of this office. Some egalitarians would say that women should not be elders, but they should teach. Um, some moderate complementarians um, would say that would say that as well. So there's overlap across the board, and um, which just confuses things too. Um, practically, complementarians would say men and women are partners. They are complementary in the way that they function within the family of God. I think it's worth clarifying too that complementarians would generally say there are no ministry gifts that are distinct for men or for women, but actually there are instructions regarding where those gifts ought to be used and within a church family. So just to say, well, this person is gifted for this thing, a complementarian would say that doesn't mean they ought to use it in that context. God gifts all kinds of people for all kinds of things. It doesn't necessarily mean that they have to use it in the same way. There is an appropriate use within the church body for the gifts that God gives us. Um, let's jump on to the five key passages. Well done, guys. Do you feel, if you want to go and get caffeine or biscuits, um, I recognise... Uh, you might need that. Actually, before we jump into the five passages, I just want to say 1 Corinthians 12. Um, and this is just, again, to re, re-emphasise this. So we're about, in the third sheet of it, we're about two-thirds of the way down. <coughs> Don't forget the church is not like the world. If you read 1 Corinthians 12, for example, passage you're probably very familiar with, the, the way that the body um, of, of Christ, the church, um, in a sense reflects God. So, verse 4 to 6, for example, there are different kinds of gifts, but the same Spirit distributes them. There are different kinds of service, but the same Lord. Different kinds of working, but in all of them, and everyone, it is the same God at work. You've got Trinity there, and you've got diversity. So the foundational reason for a diverse church, in one sense, for unity and diversity, is a, a God who is unified and diverse. Unity in diversity, diversity with unity. And as the chapter develops, again, um, if you want to think more about this, then go, well, look on the internet, but there'll be more than road, there'll be various sermons we've done on this in the past. Um, there's this beautiful 
anti-worldly way in which everybody is vital. Regardless of your role within the church, everybody is vital. So the eye can't say to the hand, I don't need you. The head can't say to the feet, I don't need you. Those parts of the body that seem to be weaker and dispensable. It's a way of thinking that there is absolute equality within the church. And the world doesn't get that. Because I think the world would say, <coughs> example, secondary school. Who's the most important person at secondary school? If you push comes to shove, they would probably say that the headmaster or mistress is more important than the cleaner. Whereas I think you were to say, if you were to draw that into the analogy into the church, everybody is as important as each other. Everybody has absolute equality. And regardless of the position that is played in the church, the opportunity to serve in the church, we are all equally valuable to one another. Um, part of the part of the reason I say that is in our culture we think the most important people or the people who have positions of authority are more important and therefore those who, who don't have those positions of authority are less important I could be wrong on that um, but I think that is worth bringing into the conversation again we can chat more about that later um, as a brief aside I love parkrun and one of the reasons I love Parkrun is because I think you see the church in the world. Because everybody is equally valuable at Parkrun. If you finish your 5k in 15 minutes, or an hour in 15 minutes, everybody, regardless of your speed, regardless of your role, is equally valuable. The 15 minuter is as important at Parkrun as the hour and 15 minute a tail walker. Um, which means sometimes we can struggle in church thinking who gets to do what thing because we're thinking that person is devalued because they can't do that or they don't do that. Five passages, Ephesians 5. Again, far too much to say. Um, we preached on this at Mordham Road on the 17th of November 2013. Um, if you want to have a listen to that, then let me encourage you to do that. I'm not going to read it, but I'm going to just try and bring you some brief comments on it, because I think they set the pattern for us in an important way. Um, a few things to say. One, verse 21, there is a context of mutual submission to one another. But within that, verse 22, wives are called to submit to their own husbands. Actually, something else to say as well. The context is of a spirit-filled church. What, does spirit, what do spirit-filled churches look like? They look like places of mutual submission to one another. If you look back at verse 16 onwards. Okay, so mutual submission, and yet within that, verse 22, wives are called to submit to their own husbands. Why? Well, Paul says, because the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body, of which he is the saviour. Okay, so a marriage is supposed to point to the church, and yet look at what kind of husbands us husbands are to be. The definition of love there is loving, sacrificial, wife-centred love, pouring out our lives for our wives. Serving our wives in everything as Christ poured himself out for his church. That's the broad scheme. 
Yes, this passage can be abused and it can be problematic. No, I'm not saying wives who are being abused ought to stay within that context. I know um, there may well be people known to us um, uh, who have suffered badly in marriages, and I'm not saying that. I don't think Paul would say that. But the shape of mar- the shape of a godly marriage, says Paul, is that husbands love their wives as Christ loved the church, giving themselves up for their wives, and wives are to submit to their own husbands. Again, that's been abused at times and says, look, women have to submit to all men. I don't think that's true. Again, look at the context and, and read Ephesians 5. Um, again, Paul goes back to Genesis 2 for his authority from this. He goes back to the beginning and Paul is happy to sit under that. 1 Corinthians 11 um, Again, I'm going to get, so, so that's my general broad one. I'm going to dive in at some of the sticky bits, basically, um, and try and help you, help us uh, get to grips with what's going on and what some of these things do say and don't say. Um, 1 Corinthians 11, again, the breadth on commentaries is just a joy to behold. So, um, it's worth saying, some think that in Corinth there was um, an Artemis cult there, um, uh, a, a female god, there's prostitution problems, and therefore there are women who have been a part of that Artemis cult coming into the church. Um, I think the jury's out on that. There may be something in that, there may not. I'm not going to hang much on it, but it is there. Some will definitely refer to it and speak about it. Um, what we do know in chapter 11, again, let me just read it, and then I'm going to say a few things about it. You will see I've, been, I've just got the kind of core of the argument. There are other things that you can come and check to me afterwards, like what does he mean because of the angels and all. That but um, every man who every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonours his head. But every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonours her head. It is the same as having her head shaved. For if a woman does not cover her head, she might as well have her hair cut off. But if it is a disgrace for a woman to have her hair cut off or her head shaved, then she should cover her head. It sounds a bit weird, doesn't it? I think there are a few things we can be sure and I think it is quite cultural what's going on. Um, Paul is talking about headwear in church in Corinth. He's talking about clothes. And it seems that those clothes and the headwear are linked to issues of gender and authority and creation and the glory of God. Gender, authority, creation and the glory of God. And the point I think is that in Corinth at the time, for a woman to have her hair down, it would be seen as being sexually provocative in church. In fact, it may be how you will identify as a prostitute. So at the very least, Paul is talking about head covering um, to, to reinforce, he's talking about covering hair so that you might reinforce in their culture the uniqueness of gender difference. To reflect the glory of God as God made them. Um, a respect for creation, and, and therefore he says, in Corinth, and elsewhere as far as we know, in Corinth, a woman ought to have her head covered, um, and a man ought to have short hair and head uncovered. 
and wanting to maintain and celebrate the distinction between the sexes. Guarding moral and sexual purity for culturally specific ways in Corinth at the time. But the striking thing I want you to notice is this. In Corinth, the woman, women, verse 5, are praying and prophesying in church. Because we miss it and we think, oh, it's all about head cutting, that's weird. But actually, just notice in verse 5, Paul does not prohibit women from praying and prophesying in church. Paul is happy with that. The thing he is not happy with is the culturally inappropriate clothes being worn. Um, there's a theologian, an Australian theologian called Michael Bird, who is um, an egalitarian, he describes himself as, he's an Anglican. Um, and he says this, he says, all in all, Paul is focusing on humanity as created by God, as male and female, and on living out the specific calling of their God-given gender in a way appropriate to the cultural environment of ancient Corinth, so that God is truly glorified by their public prayer, their public praise, prayer and prophecy. But notice, this is important, verse 5, women are praying and prophesying. He doesn't stop that. He just tells them to put something on their heads. Why does that matter? Because then we get to chapter 14 and he says women should remain silent in the church. They are not allowed to speak but must be in submission as the law says. If they want to inquire about something they should ask their own husbands at home but it's disgraceful for women to speak in the church. I mean, hang on. Paul, have you got a really short-term memory problem Because you just said in chapter 11 that they can pray and prophesy. So what is going on? You see that? See what I'm getting at? Some nonsense-ish. Has Paul changed his mind? What is going on? I think here, in chapter 14, what we've got is we've got the context of a chaotic, disorderly, prophetic mother. Okay? Chaotic, disorderly, prophetic muddle. One writer puts it like this. He says, Paul's dealing with a group of people that have no restraint and show no obvious concern for those around them. Instead, the gift of the Spirit, questions, worship, preaching, everything has become, to some degree, um, I have just... Excellent. So the context is of a chaotic, disorderly, prophetic muddle. One writer says this, it's dealing with a group of people that have no restraint and show no obvious concern for those around them. Instead, the gifts of the Spirit, questions, worship, preaching, everything has become, to some degree, self-serving. It fails to edify others and leads to total pandemonium. Um, what's going on here? So some would say, again... <laughs> Interestingly, this is a later addition to the text. It's not authentic. It's not from Paul, and so we should discount it. I don't feel able to comment on those um, scribal textual issues, but it makes me twitchy when people try and deal with the hard bits by suggesting they're not original and we can just tipex them out. Um, I think the best explanation here is what Paul envisages is there are two or three people prophesying, and then verse 29 to 30, that is weighed. So maybe you've got a, a group of people who, who are thinking they have some kind of prophecy and then that, there's a weighing that happens. And so I wonder what Paul is prohibiting here in 14 that he allows in 11 
is the authoritative weighing of the prophecies being spoken. Presumably, as we'd see from elsewhere in the New Testament, that would be an eldership task. We saw that in previous weeks, that elders are to positively teach, but also guard from untruth within the the church community. Um, Although, having said that, it's striking that elders are never mentioned in Corinth, um, and it would have been great if they had been, because, as we know, it was divided and not ideal. Um, Which then brings us to 1 Timothy. And... Here is where we will kind of end up or spend um, the last bit of our time. I've not got a huge amount more to say, um, and then you're free to go or come and lynch me, whatever it might be. (laughs) 1 Timothy 2 particularly. Now, I don't like to uh, criticise the Bible that we use because I think that's not very helpful generally, but I'm frustrated with the inconsistency of the NIV at this point. So in 1 Timothy 3 verse 15, you see there on your handouts, Paul says, If I am delayed, you will know how people ought to conduct themselves in God's household, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and the foundation of the truth. Earlier in that chapter... Um, the ESV, I think, gets it right. He's talking about an elder. He says he must manage his own household well, with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? Okay, what do we see there? We see. But do you remember? If you do, you remember in Ephesians five, you've got husbands in the marriage are to pour themselves out like Jesus for their wives. Well, so Paul draws the line here between um, the family of God and his own family, the household of God and his own household, his own home. And actually, if you were here two weeks ago, we thought about metaphors for the local church um, and we saw that family and household are the key overarching metaphor used for local churches, for, for God's church. So it seems to me what Paul is getting at as he writes to Timothy, as he then describes what elders ought to be like, is that elders are the, if you like, the dads who pour themselves out and look out after their own household, so then they can look after God's household. So he draws the line between um, those who manage your own household well and then so conduct themselves in God's household. Which then means we get to chapter 2 and verse 11 to 15. And it, I, I think, it, in one sense, lots of it hangs off this. I was saying to Dave earlier, one of the frustrations with this topic is that almost each and every um, passage we've looked at, there are questions, and we're kind of thinking, what does he mean by that? Um, well, it's the same here. Again, we can come and grab me afterwards and we'll talk a bit about um, verse 13, 14, 15 and what's going on there. But Paul says this, teaching Timothy, who's in Ephesus at the time, he says, A woman should learn in quietness and full submission. I do not permit a woman to teach or to assume authority over a man. She must be quiet. For Adam was formed first and Eve, and Adam was not the one deceived. It was the woman who was deceived and became a sinner. But women will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith, love and holiness with propriety. Um, We're going to zoom in on verse 11 and 12. And just to say a couple of things. The first one is this. Wow. 
Well, isn't Paul great that in a patriarchal culture he wants women to learn? Isn't that extraordinary? That would have been revolutionary at the time. One first century rabbi said, rather should the words of the Torah be burned than entrusted to a woman. A little later on a prayer said, praise be to God that he has not created me a Gentile. Praise be to God that he has not created me a woman. Praise be to God that he has not created me an ignorant man. So if you think of the patriarchal culture of the time, I know verse 11 grates us. I know that grates, as we hear it through our ears. But at the time, I wouldn't say it's kind of female liberation, but there's something going on in that Paul is lifting up the importance and the value of women. In fact, the local church, the early church, was um, hugely female-dominated. So don't miss that as we, try and, as we hear it through our, our ears or read it through our eyes and in the 21st century. Paul is, is building up, lifting up women at this point. And why is he saying to learn in quiet submission? Why is he saying to not permit a woman to teach? Whereas in Corinth, assuming appropriate head covering, presumably he was happy for them to prophesy. Fundamentally, I think it comes down to the words there in verse 12, to teach or to assume authority, or to teach or to exercise authority. Um, I think the words are to teach with authority. And a big question comes down to the fact of what do we mean by teaching with authority? Is, is what I did this morning down at Morden Road, is that teaching with authority? It's uh, the kind of sermon you'd have on a Sunday morning. Reading of scripture and then a kind of exhortation explanation and helping us apply it as individuals in a church, is that teaching with authority? Or is it more than that? So some would say, yes, it's that first thing. Again, we're halfway down the final side here. Sermons in church. Some would say what he meant by teaching with authority at the time was kind of guarding an apostolic orthodoxy. Okay, so he would, some would say this was a specific thing for a specific time in the life of the early church. And so 1 and 2 Timothy and Titus, the pastoral epistles as we sometimes call them, are letters seemingly from the end of the New Testament. The apostles were dying out. And they emphasise the importance of the word of God being preserved and passed down to the next generation. And therefore, some would say that the teaching with authority is a specific thing for this time in the life of the early church. And so they would say, well, it's for elders. That's why he will go on in chapter 3, and we've got a little bit from it there in verse 4 to 5, to to apply that to elders within the church. And I'm not convinced we can draw such a clear distinction between those two things. Teaching with authority sermons at the front of church and teaching with authority, guarding the gospel as they have, then there has to be an overlap now into what we have. The teaching with authority we have now is not the same guarding the gospel as they had then. You get that particularly in 2 Timothy, with the the idea of the baton being passed down the ages. Um, But there must be overlap. Addressing the people of God from the word of God at the main formal corporate gathering on a Sunday morning carries weight with it. Um... Which means, um, which means potentially, some would say, um, that even within a church where you've got a male eldership, because they're convinced by um, the stuff in chapter 3, for example, and tying it in with Ephesians 5, and they'd say, could, can women preach? And the, the answer, some would say, and at MRC we have had that in the past, it is more of a yes. 
then why do we not have more of it now, we'll say. And that is because we think fundamentally it is the elders of those who are to teach. Again, that's back in the first session from our distinctives. If you want to listen back to that. That that is why primarily at the front of church on a Sunday morning there will be elders who are teaching. Because that is part of our role to um, equip God's people for work for service as pastor, teacher, elders. You see that being worked out in Timothy and Titus to lovingly guard and to feed the flock but also um, to, yeah, to, to, to do that negatively and positively to protect God's people and to feed God's people. That seems to be, as you read the New Testament when you see the local church meeting together you see elders are the ones who are to be able to teach and preach. Again, two weeks ago head back and listen to that if that's helpful. And we thought about local elders being godly and full of Christ-like character and so um, able to teach the people of God. Um, Where does that leave us? Having gone on far too long. That leaves us, we would, I think we are, as a church, moderate complementarians. Um, I hope there is a humble generosity in what that means and how that is lived out at Magdalen Road. Um, it means that we would see eldership as being for um, servant-hearted men who pour themselves out for the body, um, for the household of God, and yet to tangibly demonstrate that complementarity within the life of the body. We believe in every member ministry, and so we want to have a variety of people doing a variety of things. Um, for example, on a Sunday, leading services which we are relatively unusual as an evangelical church for that to be a thing that is okay. Or um, women leading bands, or indeed two weeks ago entire bands um, uh, leading kids slots, praying, reading, or on the staff team, or as trainees, or, or having indeed authority over men in their teams, which we would have. And this Tuesday we have our first meeting of a leadership team, which we hope to have two or three times a year, where there will be elders, elders and deacons I've not spoken much about deacons, but we would see men and women being deacons. But elders, elders and deacons and their spouses gathering together in a mixed group to think through leadership and to think through MRC and to think through um, what it means to, to do this well. To discuss and to pray and to listen, to get a breadth of input and wisdom and advice from mature men and women who love the Lord and who love Magdalen Road. Um, I think it's fair to say that our vision won't. Our vision is that we would grow as a church, that we would flourish as a church, as men and women together use their gifts, um, serving behind the scenes, but serving up front in different ways as well. As we see from the scriptures, um, God has ordained it, um, and as we trust Him and look to Him. Let me lead us in prayer, and then we'll work out next steps. Father in heaven, so much information there, um, so many passages um, skimmed over. Pray that you would give us clarity as to what it is you're saying through your word. And more than that, pray that you would give us soft hearts, that we might trust you, and that we might look to you and listen to you. Pray that you would be at work in us. Pray that you would cause us to flourish as you have been at Modern Rose. Pray that you will be growing us in Christ's likeness. And pray that every 
member and part of the body of Christ at Magdalen Road would be growing up in their gifts and would be growing in Christ-likeness. In his name we pray. Amen.